And now I have the honor to uh, introduce to you uh, Jesse York. Jesse, if you want to come on up here and, and join me up here. Uh, Jesse is uh, uh, the uh, pastor of Heritage Presbyterian Church in Wildwood, which uh, is, uh, if you go 472 miles out, 44. Uh, it's on the right and up a ways on the left. Uh, Jesse is a member of uh, Missouri Presbytery. He's here with his wife, Becky, and their daughter, Stevie. And uh, uh, Jesse is going to bring the charge to us today. So, uh, Jesse, thank you, and uh, give us the Word of God. Do my best. I, uh, my wife was off feeding our baby. I had this in my pocket. When she comes back, it's going to be essential uh, to the peace of the rest of the service. So can you? Thank you. Thank you. I think you all have Bibles in those pews. Go ahead and open them up to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 11 uh, from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 3, verse 7. And if that passage is starting to look familiar to you as you kind of glance over it, it's because it was the focus of our confession, our call to confession earlier in the service. Uh, It's a longer passage, and so we're not going to really be able to get into all the grainy sort of details of it. Um, Just let me give a quick sort of rundown of the book of Titus, just to sort of intro us to the book as you're flipping there. Titus is a letter. It's a letter written uh, by the Apostle Paul to a church leader, to a pastor named Titus. He was the pastor of uh, the congregations in the region of Crete. Uh, Now, that's why it's called pastoral epistle. There's a couple of books in the Bible that are called pastoral epistles. You know, an epistle, that's just another word for letter. Uh, To say it's a pastoral epistle is just simply to say that it was written by a pastor to a pastor. So that's why it's a a pastoral epistle. And I thought, you know, it would be fitting to use a letter from a pastor to a pastor uh, as a good source of biblical material for this installation service today, uh, which I'm really uh, honored and uh, and grateful to be able to be here and to be a part of it. Uh, to see Keith be installed and to see the love that you all have for him and the eagerness you are to have him as your pastor. It's really, really encouraging. Uh, Also, greetings from your sister church heritage out in Wildwood. I think it's only like 30 miles away or something like that. (laughs) So let's go ahead and dive in. But before we do, please, please bow your heads and pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day of worship, this day to honor you, this day of celebration this day where we honor and recognize the work that you've done in Keith's life, even his ministry that has already been ongoing here at Memorial for these several years, and this new stage of it, this new blessing where you have called him through your leaders uh, to be the pastor of this church. Lord, bless our time in your word. Your word is inspired by your spirit, and your spirit dwells within all those who love you and know you and, and have embraced your son as Savior. But your word will have no effect on our hard hearts unless your spirit works within us to soften us, to receive it. That is exactly what we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts to transform us. We pray that not any one of us would be the same person we were when we leave this place today. Let us be more like your son. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. 
Jean, uh, Jean had asked me to give a title to the sermon, I think, uh, for the purpose of the bulletin or for some reason. And so I gave him the title, Made Out of Sinners. And now you're going to find out why. You might be sorry that you did. There's a sci-fi author. His name is Terry Bison. He wrote a short story. It's actually a, it's a very short story, in fact. It was published back in 1990. Uh, The whole entire story is made up of this conversation, one single conversation between two super intelligent aliens from another planet. Now, apparently they are a part of some sort of an intergalactic federation to travel the galaxies, to discover sentient beings and and to welcome them. They run into a snag when they get to the planet Earth, though. The first line, we have the first words of the first alien. He says to the other alien, simply, they're made out of meat. Meat? They're made out of meat. Meat? There's no doubt about it. We picked up several from different parts of the planet, took them aboard our recon vessels, and we probed them all the way through. They're made out of meat. Completely meat. That's impossible. What about the radio signal? The messages to the stars. Well, they do use radio waves, he says, to talk, but signals don't come from them. They come from machines. Well, then, who made the machines? That's who we need to talk to. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. That's ridiculous. How can meat make a machine? Are you asking me to believe in sentient meat? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. These creatures are the only sentient race in the sector, and they're made out of meat. And the whole thing kind of goes on and on and on like that. It's a really funny story. And it goes on as, as, they're, as they're debating about the whether it is, as the one being is kind of coming to terms with this. He asks, you know, what do you recommend? He says, well, officially, officially we are required to contact welcome, and log sentient races throughout the sector. However, these creatures are the only sentient race, and so how, you know, I unofficially advise that we erase the records and just forget the whole thing. This is kind of a funny story. We're supposed to be, you know, we're made out of meat, and that's just totally, totally unacceptable. The aliens felt absolutely no obligation whatsoever to pay any attention to us because of our sort of meaty, frail, inadequate weakness. And so they just flew off to try to find bigger, better things. One of the most baffling things about the church of Jesus Christ is that it has church leaders, and those church leaders, whether they be pastors, elders, shepherds, whatever you call them, they're made out of meat. You know, we're made out of, and, and to, to, to bring it even further, we're made out of sinners. The leadership of Christ's church is made out of sinners. Probe us all the way through, we're made out of sinners. Leadership in the church is made out of sinners. And we know, when we, when we know what our leaders are made out of, we feel less obligated to listen to them or to treat them with any respect. Now, I'm a leader in the church for some reason, and I know my sinner, and as a result, I can be tempted to shut down in my ministry. 
Not because I don't think that people need to hear the gospel and have it applied to their lives, but because of the overwhelming sense that I am not the appropriate choice as a mouthpiece for that gospel. After all, I'm made out of meat. Who am I to declare anything with authority to fellow sinners? Paul was made out of meat, so was Titus. Baffling as it may be, this is actually God's design for the church. This passage teaches us that God actually takes sinners saved by grace to point sinners to God's grace. I'm going to repeat that because that's kind of the main point. I don't know if you're taking notes. If you are, this would be the thing to write down probably. God takes sinners saved by grace to point sinners to God's grace. As we work our way through this, we're going to look at the, uh, Keith, we're going to look at the authority of your calling. We're going to look at the absurdity of your calling. And we're going to look at the purpose of your calling. So let's start with the authority of your calling. What exactly is the nature of the authority of your calling as a pastor? Chapter 2, verse 15, if you've got your Bibles, starts with this. It says, Paul says to Titus, he says, declare these things. Well, what things? What's he supposed to declare? Probably Paul has in mind all of the things he's said so far throughout the letter, but maybe more specifically, he's pointing to the passage just before, which is like this gigantic, tragically packed run-on sentence from verse 11 all the way to 14. Those four verses are basically a summary of the entire Christian message, if you think about it. Here's what it says. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the gospel. Jesus, our Savior, our God, gave himself to save us from our sin. And he gave his Holy Spirit to make us his. Titus is charged to declare that gospel message. He's charged to declare the gospel message. He is charged to do so, which says, all authority. There's no room in God's kingdom for, well, you've got your truth and I've got my truth, and they're all equally valid. Or this idea of, you know, you do you, I'll do me kind of religion. There's one gospel, one message, one Savior that actually saves us. That's what we must bear with all authority. That free grace of God ought to transform those who embrace it. So it makes sense that, this, that the pastor charged to declare the gospel then is also charged to cultivate the fruit of the gospel. And so we see in the next couple of verses, Paul tells Titus, first of all, to remind believers in the church. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, be submissive. They're reminded to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now in view there is civil authorities. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we are above civil authority or above civil duty. We are to be obedient. And then to more to bring it a little more generally, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Listen to that language. That language is community building language. Now, I understand, Keith, that that's actually a, a, a large part of your role here at Memorial is community building. Christ-centered community building is not just something nice that we do to make the church a more welcoming place or more attractive to lonely people. It's the very fruit of the gospel. The human relationships that are built on the foundation of the gospel are a reflection of God's relationship with us. You know, His, His goodness and loving kindness was poured out on us in Christ. And now we pour out that loving kindness on others. It ought to be natural, but it's not. Because, you know, we're a church made out of sinners all the way through. But that's where you come in, Keith. And your gift set and your heart are a perfect match for this role. To remind God's people of the loving kindness of God. And to provide opportunities for that loving kindness to spread laterally outward into this church community and, of course, the larger community. So, so far we've seen a couple of verbs for your role as a, as a pastor. We've seen the verb declare. Declare the gospel truth of salvation by God's grace. We've seen the verb remind. Remind believers to live out that gospel in community. But there's some more heavy verbs that actually show up kind of between declare and remind in verse 15. Look at the chapter 2, verse 15. These are the verbs that kind of make us squirm in our pews a little bit. Verbs like rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. As you declare the gospel and cultivate its fruit, you are to do so with pastoral authority. Now again, our parents' generation, they were averse to, to authority being over them. Our generation reverse to authority, aren't we? It's in our nature, in our culture. Our temptation as sinners is saved by God's grace alone and called to be ministers of His Word is to shy away from anything that says that we have authority. And this is the most intrusive kind of authority, isn't it? This is the kind of authority that speaks into people's personal lives and tells them how they should live and what they should believe. I mean, who in the world has the authority to do such a thing? What is the basis for that authority? There is none except the Word of God. The Scriptures of the Old and New Testament Authority does not come from us, and what comes from us is not authoritative. But what comes from God is. When a servant of Christ, called by Him to be a minister of His Word, submits to God's Word, and then preaches it and teaches it boldly from that place of submission, that's authoritative. That's pastoral authority. Let no one disregard that kind of leadership. Now, a mature believer will go actually looking for the authority of the teaching and preaching of God's Word. I have a friend. I think he's in the room. Yep, I see him. He's a teaching elder in our presbytery. You might know him. He's a guy named Mort Whitman. He's been in ministry for decades. He's actually, he's my mentor. 
Uh, he's been in ministry for, I think, and I hope this doesn't embarrass, but I think you've been in ministry for like one and a half times my lifespan. Does that sound about right, Mort? Now, our presbytery meets once a quarter. I want to tell you a little story. Our presbytery meets once a quarter. When it does, it meets at one of our local churches just two quarters ago. It was here at Memorial. When a church hosts presbytery, they also hold a worship service, and the the host pastor is to preach a sermon to all of the people in presbytery. You've heard the expression, preaching to the choir? Imagine preaching to an entire sanctuary full of preachers, Pastors, elders, and your seminary professors. Now, when the quarterly meeting of Presbytery was held at Heritage one time, Mort came up to me before the service, and he said something to me that that humbled me and changed me, I think, forever. He said, I am so looking forward to hearing the Word of God preached through you. How crazy is that? Here's a seasoned veteran pastor wanted to hear me preach the Word of God to him. And it wasn't because he wanted to see me work. It wasn't because he wanted to hear me talk. It was because he wanted to see God work in him, in his heart. He believed God had called me to do that that day. Memorial Presbyterian Church, your own pastor Greg, actually, Greg Johnson sent me an email earlier this week saying that he was looking forward to hearing me preach God's Word Now that makes my meat brain think just, why? Who am I? But I know why. It's not because of these men wanting to hear me speak. It's because they want to hear God's Word preached. They are eager to hear God's Word preached and taught, and they'll take any chance that they can get to get it. Memorial, you have a couple of beautiful examples, and I'm guessing it's multiplied of that kind of humility before God and His Word that we all ought to have, a a humility that expects and yearns for God to transform us by the preaching and teaching of His Word. I know that we don't like the idea of giving someone else spiritual authority in our lives, but it will make more sense for us to submit to the authority of of either Greg or Keith or any of the elders of this church called by God when we realize that they have actually been called by God for this purpose, to bring the life-giving, freedom-setting authority of God's Word to bear in our lives. Keith, God has called you to this. Do it with all authority and don't let anyone disregard you. Don't let yourself disregard your word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, come to service on Sunday. Come to community group or Bible study or wherever you are coming with a sincere expectation that God is going to transform you through the ministry of His word through these men. So God has chosen to mediate the authority of his word through human leaders and there is an apparent absurdity in that isn't there so let's talk about the absurdity of your calling look at what paul says about you know and it's not just your calling right it's my calling greg's calling mort's calling titus paul even includes himself here look at what he says about us in verse three 
chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, why does Paul go and, and like, it's like a wall of shame. Why does he go and put up this wall of shame in front of Titus? I mean, he just got finished telling Titus that the church folks at the First Presbyterian Church of Crete need to do just the opposite of these things, right? Why then draw attention to the fact that he and Titus had been guilty of all of these things? Now, doesn't their past disqualify them both, and us for that matter, from calling God's people to obedience? No. The sinful life that we were saved out of does not actually disqualify us from ministry. In fact, keeping that wall of shame in front of us is one of the things that keeps us qualified for ministry. And it works in a few different ways, each having to do with our attitudes. First, we're reminded to have a humble attitude towards our position, our position maybe in the church. We all once were these things listed in verse 3, but then something happened, right? What happened? We got smart. We uh, cleaned up our act. We turned over a new leaf. No, that's not what happened. Verse 5 says that God saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness, that is, works that we've done, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. If any of us is, is ever called to leadership in the church, it is not because we were in any way less sinful than the next guy. Each and every one of us, from one end to the other, probed all the way through. Remember, we're all sinners. If we are Christians at all, it's by God's mercy. If we grow at all in the Christian life, and if someday we find ourselves called to a place of leadership in the church, it is, not, it is only because of the washing and the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the work of God in us. I know you well enough, I think, Keith, to see this kind of humility in you, and I, can, I had it actually confirmed by some folks who know you well. That there's this kind of humility in your ministry. And for all those here who have witnessed a kind of a meekness to the leadership style of Keith, I don't want you for a second, as he has that kind of humility towards his position, I don't want you for a second to mistake that meekness for weakness. It's actually Keith's greatest place of strength in his ministry. As sinners saved by grace, we all really ought to have humble attitudes towards our position in this family of God, and a compassionate attitude towards those tangled in sin. Why? Because that's how God treated us in, in our sin, right? When we were at our worst, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 4 says. And though we were rebels against Him, verse 6 says that He poured out His Holy Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become nothing less than heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
When a brother or a sister is caught in sin and pastors and elders must use their authority to try to bring them back, it ought to be a compassionate thing. That's why the first step in church discipline is always personal confession on the part of the pastors and elders involved. Paul says in verse 3, we ourselves, you know, we ourselves, we were once these things. Maybe there's part of us that's still struggling with secret sins, secret lusts of the heart, greed or envy. Lord, show me. Show me where I have fallen into the same traps that my brother or sister has fallen into. Help me with the log in my eye. Now that's the right place, I think, to be. Not just for discipline, but really for all teaching and preaching ministry. Compassion for the one caught in sin. With a humble desire to see them restored. Now, have you, has anyone ever held a hedgehog? This is a little bit of a change of subject. Have you ever held a hedgehog? You know what I'm talking about? Funny little, okay. You've got to be careful when you handle a hedgehog, right? You don't, yep, you don't touch the top. So the bottom, the belly of a hedgehog is soft and furry and it's cute. And their little feet are furry and they're cute. The face of a hedgehog is the sweetest little fuzzy, furry little face. It just says, cuddle me. Pick me up and cuddle me. But the, the softness ends there. Because the back and the sides, you know, a hedgehog, it's, it's made up of these prickly, spiky, thorn-like hairs. They're called spines. Everything else about the hedgehog says, pick me up, I'm cute, cuddle me. But the, but the spines, they say, back off. Get away from me. Our past lives before Christ redeemed us and saved us. That ought to soften our bellies so that we maintain a soft, humble attitude towards our present position in the body of Christ. Likewise, our past failings and disobedience ought to give us soft, furry faces and our attitudes towards others caught in sin, right? The softness stops there. When it comes to our attitude towards sin itself, we need to grow hard, prickly spines that say, get away from me. Our past failures and disobedience, all of which have been forgiven, ought to give us a resolute attitude against the sin itself. Humility that comes from knowing that we ourselves are sinners saved by God's grace does not ever, should not ever, soften our attitude towards sin. Towards the sinner? Absolutely. But the wages of sin is death. Sin is such a deadly, serious matter that the Son of God Himself, who had no sin, had to come and take death upon Himself in order to save us from our sin. So we rightly ought to have spiny, hardened, rigid, resolute attitudes against sin in our own lives and sin in the lives of the people that we minister to. A minister who takes a soft stance on sin does not extend grace to his congregation. No, in fact, he's actually robbing them of God's grace because he's telling them that they don't need it in the first place because you're fine just the way you are. Oh, really? Then why did Christ die? Did Christ die because I'm fine? Or did Christ die because I'm messed up and I need a Savior? So Keith, 
We've looked at the authority of your calling. We've looked at the absurdity of your calling. Let's finish by looking at the why question, right? Why would God use sinners like us? What's the purpose of your calling? There's this point in uh, John Stott's book. John Stott's a preacher, writer, pastor. Um, he, uh, he wrote a book called The Message of Ephesians. It, he says it's not a commentary on Ephesians. It's kind of a commentary on Ephesians. I was reading uh, this, this commentary in one, at one point when he gets to comments on chapter 4. He said this about a time that he had visited a church once. He said he was visiting this church and that he had read the bulletin, the back of the bulletin, you know, where it tells you all the people that are part of the doings of ministry and things in the church, the titles and then the names. And it goes down this whole list. And at the very bottom, it says ministers as a title. And you're expecting it to be followed by the names of all of the pastors of the church. It's not. It says ministers, the entire congregation. That's a really good illustration of what Paul actually says in Ephesians 4. And in fact, it was the passage that was used for the call to worship this morning in our, in our service. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, that's Old and New Testament, right? Apostles and prophets. And then the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that's, that's those who planted and who lead and pastor this church. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So according to Ephesians 4, the purpose of your calling, Keith, is not to go and do all of the ministry of the gospel yourself, but to equip God's people to do it. They are the ministers. We pick up that same theme here in Titus 2 and 3, actually. Titus isn't actually being charged to go and do all of the ministry of the church for everybody. He's actually being charged to go and equip the church to be living, breathing examples of the effects of the gospel. He's to do it actually by being a living, breathing example of the effects of the gospel. Now, all vocations are sacred in God's eyes and are to be done to His glory. Your vocation, Keith, has the express purpose of declaring and equipping us with the power of the gospel. We do this as pastors, as elders, by declaring, reminding, and being living, breathing examples of the effects of the gospel in our own lives. Only. Now, why why wouldn't we use a more appropriate, like less sinful uh, leader for the church? Maybe angels could come down and lead and pastor it. No. Only sinners saved by God's grace can do this, can be living, breathing examples of the grace of God. God takes sinners saved by grace to point sinners to God's grace. And so here's finally the the charge, right? The charge. Now, I know that because he's an assistant pastor, you didn't have to take vows uh, to... Vows, the elders took the vows, the congregation didn't need to take the vows. I'm still going to offer a charge to you all as well. And, and I don't think it's going to be misplaced on account of the fact that you all so eagerly were ready to see Keith become your pastor. Surely because he's already been your pastor in so many ways. And so this charge is actually twofold. There's two sides to this. So Paul charged the Reverend Titus to take up his call and to declare the truths of the gospel with all authority 
of a divinely called leader in the church. And so now we also charge you, Reverend Keith Robinson, to take up your call as a pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church. And likewise, we call upon you, Memorial Presbyterian Church, to embrace and submit to Keith's pastoral leadership, even though he's made out of meat. Even though he's made out of the same sinner stuff that we're all made of. This is God's design. And in humility and submission to God's word, God will use Keith to bring glory through, our, through all of our transformation by the preaching and teaching of the word. This is God's divine, and he will bring glory in it. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, You are good to us to provide us with leaders, teachers, preachers, evangelists, shepherds. Heavenly Father, we have a hard time embracing the idea that such leaders could be made out of the same stuff we're made out of. But Lord, such is your design. Because there's there's your spirit at work in those that you've called. Even as your spirit is at work in all of us to transform us to make us every day more and more like your Son. You have declared us holy by the holiness of your Son, Jesus Christ. You have declared us heirs of your eternal hope. Our identity has been fundamentally changed by the gospel. But our lives and our hearts are a work in progress. Use Keith. And all the leaders of this church, all the leaders of your church worldwide, to point us to the saving grace of Christ, which transforms and helps us to be what we are in him. Lord, we pray all these things for your glory and in your son's name. Amen.